0: Hello, welcome to Collective Bargain, the labor-focused show brought to you by the Heartland Pod. My name is Glenn Coggy, Jr. I'm a union member, policy activist, and have run my own labor-centered blog, Labor Front. Learn more about me at laborfront.com and more about the Heartland Pod at heartlandpod.com. Thanks for taking time to join me. Now, let's get to the show. Hey, it's Glenn from Labor Front. Before we get into this week's Heartland Pods Collective Bargain Show, I'd like to talk a little bit about the international UAW's negotiations with the big three. That's Ford, Stellantis Chrysler, and General Motors. Recently, Stellantis Chrysler and the GM, I'm sorry, the UAW negotiators, hit a bit of a bump in the road with Ford and Stellantis refusing to recognize the factory workers at the battery facilities under our collective bargaining agreement. So, just this week, International UAW President Sean Fain walked out to Sterling Heights Assembly Facility where they build Dodge trucks, and it has created quite a hubbub up in Detroit. Things sound like they're getting pretty close, but there's still a few bumps in the road that need to be ironed out. Fain is up for the job. Keep up the good work, Sean. Love you, buddy. Now, to the show. This week's uh, edition of Collective Bargain is going to be an interview with Tony Pekanowski. Tony is an author of three books. He is an activist in the St. Louis metropolitan area, and he is a member of the Communist Party. Um, he is currently district staff person for the Missouri Kansas Communist Party and he's been the National Organizing Director of Speak Progress. He writes regularly for People's World and the St. Louis Labor Tribune, one of the oldest and most respected union papers in the St. Louis metropolitan area. His articles have been published in Shelter Forest, Z Magazine, Alternate, and Political Affairs, among other publications. I look forward to having a conversation. I hope you enjoy it. This is Glenn from Collective Bargain on the Heartland Pod. Check, tune in and check it out. I've known Tony for many years. We worked together fifteen or twenty years ago on some doing some social activism work. And Tony's top notch. And this is going to be a fun interview. I look forward to talking to him and uh, catching up. We haven't talked to each other in a while. So, Tony Pekanowski,
1: how you been, brother? I've been good. I've been good. I've just been busy, 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 you know, with uh, with work, uh, with family, with uh, uh, some semblance of a social life. Um, I've just been busy. I um, attended the 50th anniversary uh, CBTU dinner on uh, Saturday. The uh, Coalition of Black Trade Unionists here in St. Louis celebrated their 50th anniversary, which is a amazing milestone moment in the history of uh black civil rights and the labor movement in st louis and so that was a a great dinner and i was really excited excited to uh be you know be a part of that dinner and uh so yeah i've just been
0: really busy that's awesome it it came up on my schedule but i had already had something else going on so i wasn't able to make it and they do incredible work over there um Lou Moy led that. He was a UAW member out of Local 110. He led the CBTU for a long time. Yes. And now it's Jay Ozier, and you can't find a nicer guy than Jay. And oh, I yeah. hope to get him on the show sometime in the near future. Um, but yeah, you know, St. Louis, and one of the things, the reason I even reached out to you and this whole interview came about in Walter Johnson's book, um, The Broken Heart of America, I read a Chapter in it about Carrie Smith. And I had never heard of her. I've been born and raised around St. Louis. I've been active in unions and politics as long as I can remember, dating back 40 years, maybe longer than that. And I had never heard of Carrie Smith. And I read that and I thought, holy cow. And I knew that she had reached out to a communist sentner. Um, I can't remember his first name William. William Sentner. And mm-hmm. I knew that you would know. So, anyway, Carrie Smith is a, uh, she was an 18 year old African American woman who in 1933 led approximately 2,500 African American, mostly African American nut shellers on strike against the Funston Nut Company. And I was shocked to hear that and to read that. And I'm even more shocked that St. Louis labor has never talked about it or there's very little talk about it. Uh, but I also knew when I read about Sentner that if I reached out to Tony Pekanowski, he would have the goods on it. So <laughs> um, I, I contacted you last week and just as I thought, you gave me a lot of information about it. And uh, I'm actually working with Rachel Proudy, state representative out of, I think, the 77th House District uh, to commemorate the work that Carrie Smith did within the labor movement. I don't think that it's fair that she has not been recognized. And, and to even think of the courage that an 18 year old African American woman would have to have in 1933 to stand up to the establishment and demand better pay and rights and safety for the workers, it's incredible. And she was successful. Absolutely.
1: And what was her motto? Her motto, motto was a, a brick and a Bible. Um uh, she she stood on the steps of uh of the Capitol, not the Capitol, the City Hall, and said, By by God, women, we're gonna win either with a brick or a Bible. And uh and you know, ultimately I think their strike was successful. And um I think that's a real testament to the power of collective action, the power of unions and the power of working people when they come together. Um and I, I would be excited and, and really, uh, uh, you know, excited to help in any way I can in that campaign, uh, Glenn, to uh, have Carrie uh, be, be recognized in any way we can. Um, as you said, you know, as a black woman in the 1930s, this was a courageous, courageous act. Um, and, you know, you have to remember the context of the times. People were being lynched. Um, on a regular basis for standing up for their fundamental democratic rights as African-Americans. And so for her to take this courageous stance um, in St. Louis, um, a a stone's throw from, um, you know, the the deep South, um, it, it was a really courageous moment. And I think that we also should not ignore the fact that part of the reason why she is a lesser known Um, uh, champion is because she was a leader of the St. Louis Communist Party. Um, And so you have a couple of factors kind of working against her being a more well-recognized leader in the St. Louis labor movement. One, she's a woman. Two, she's a Black woman. And three, she's a Black woman communist. And so all of these factors kind of work against her being as well-recognized as some of our other uh, more well-known leaders of the era. Right. You know,
0: we talked about it a little bit off before we went online. And uh, I'm a boomer. I was born in 1958 uh, at the height of the Red Scare. You know, and there's always been this stigma surrounding communism and socialism. And over the years, I've softened the socialism recognizing that most everything we have today is some form has some form of socialism attached to it, especially since I'll be collecting my uh, social security here pretty soon. (laughs) But anyway, uh, yeah. But anyway, when it comes to communism, the more I read and and I haven't read Marx yet, and that's on my, um, that's on my agenda is something to read. The more I read and get a better grasp on the true function and definition of communism, the softer I get towards it. Could you explain
1: why there's such a stigma surrounding communism? Well, I think there's a stigma surrounding communism because, like other societies throughout history, you know, we, we have a, a, a ruling class who have an interest in, in stigmatizing the ideas of, of communism. Um, I think that's part of the answer, at least. You know, we have people who have a vested interest in stigmatizing that idea. Um, you know, we have millionaires and billionaires who profit from the idea that communists and socialists are bad. Um, if we go back, 100 years, if we go back 150 years to the time of Abraham Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln had a much different idea. Um, he corresponded with Karl Marx. He didn't agree with Karl Marx on everything, but he had a friendly correspondence with Karl Marx. And I think that we've lost that idea that even during Lincoln's time, socialism was thought of as a legitimate political idea. And most of the trade unions of the time and into the early part of the 20th century, most trade unions had as part of their constitution that their ultimate goal was to build some form of socialist society. Um, And so I think that what has happened is throughout the course of the 20th century, communism and socialism have been so villainized, so stigmatized by um, the corporate media, by politicians, as a boogeyman, um, that especially here in the United States, um, discussion of socialism and communism uh, ultimately leads to the um, ultimately leads to red baiting and witch hunting, um, and that's been the result at least since the late 1940s, early 1950s. However, if you look at the role of communist parties throughout the rest of uh, Europe. The developing world uh, within Asia, Africa, and uh, Latin America. If you look at communist parties in Japan, for example, they're considered a legitimate political force. You know, I was in France in um, 2016 in, in Paris, and it surprised me that the vice mayor of Paris is a member of the French Communist Party. Um, It surprised me that the French Communist Party had people elected to the, you know, to the, you know, the state representative, to the Congress, to whatever, you know, I'm not exactly sure what they called it, but to these different governing bodies throughout the state, local, state and federal level. And so I think in most of the rest of the world, the ideas of socialism and communism aren't as vilified as they are here. And I think that's a direct consequence of the McCarthy era and the Red Scare. Um, Of course, socialists and communists in certain countries have done their fair share to um, villainize communism, the ideas of communism and socialism. And I'm not one to act as an apologist for the Soviet Union or for some of the other countries where human rights have been violated. And I would be the first to say that violations of human rights have taken place in those countries, just as violations of human rights have taken place within the countries that are considered allies of the United States. And so I think that, you know, there's a couple of different factors that need to be weighed into why uh, socialism and communism has been so vilified within the United States, but I also think that it's important that we have more of an internationalist perspective and see that those ideas are considered legitimate political forces um, in most of the rest of the world.
0: All great points, Tony. And uh, like I said, growing up, anything even related to communism was taboo. We didn't talk about it. I mean, it was really vilified as you said And again, the more you learn, the more you read and open your mind up to different ways of thinking, the more you see that there are positive aspects of that and socialism. And, uh, you know, I don't know if you remember one of the things I used to talk about, and I've been talking about it for years. Most everybody remembers the Christmas show, It's a Wonderful Life, you know, with uh, um, Jimmy Stewart and Clarence the Angel and George Bailey and the the whole thing. And it was it was a good movie. It's still one of my favorites. I watch it every year.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: you, you we both remember when the Tea Party did their resurgence back in 08, 09, um, all over the Obamacare and and the nonsense that, that they brought to the table and the anti-government fervor that they were spreading. And it, it they didn't start it. I mean, we can think back to Ronald Reagan, whose nine most feared words of the English language are I'm from the government and I'm here to help. <laughs> yeah and grover norquist saying that he wanted to shrink government to the size you could drown it in a bathtub you know Mm -hmm. so the the government anti-government fervor started before this recent batch of tea party uh but i was laying on the floor watching it's wonderful life with the grandkids and they were going back in time uh george bailey went back in time to see how his life would have been had he not been born and i know you remember that and uh I started thinking, how would it be if Clarence the Angel took Uncle Sam back in time? Now, look, (laughs) Uncle Sam's not been great. We both know that. But how would it be if we went back and you can almost see the two of them peering through a window uh, of an old factory and Uncle Sam's peering through the windows and he turns to Clarence the Angel and he says, Clarence, what are these kids doing working in that sweatshop? Clarence says, well, Sam, you were never born. You were never here to make child labor illegal. Uncle Sam says, why aren't these kids in school with the rest of the kids? And Clarence says, well, you were never here to establish a department of education where all children got an equal opportunity to go to school. You know, the gentle hand of government is always there guiding us. And that's part of the socialism, uh, awakening of socialism, I guess, yeah. is a better way to put it. Now, granted, it get the government's hand isn't always light or gentle, sometimes it's pretty heavy handed. And nobody wants that. But everything in our lives has some aspect of government oversight on it. From the air we breathe, the water we drink, the cars we drive, you don't ever hear of steering wheels just popping off because there's guidelines and uh, safety measures that have to be taken on everything manufactured in the United States. That is a part of socialism that people don't think about.
1: Yeah. Well, and I would add that behind every one of those victories uh, against child labor for environmental protection, for consumer protection, for, you know, whatever it is, behind each and every one of those victories is a grassroots struggle that um, encapsulates the democracy that I think you and I, you know, hold so dear and that I think, you know, the Communist Party, at least the, the Communist Party of, of the United States has been part and parcel of since its founding in, in 1919. And I think that's partly why I joined the Communist Party. And, you know, it has nothing to do with the Soviet Union or with some other country. It has to do with what communists did here in the United States. And when people say, oh, you're a communist and blah, 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 I take it as a badge of honor because I think, think of that as being held in high esteem, you know, because I think of people like Angela Davis, I think of people like W.E.B. Du Bois. I think of people like Paul Robeson and uh, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn. I think of Eugene Debs, who was a leader of the Socialist Party. I think of Mother Jones and all of these people who pushed the envelope beyond what it would have been if we had just had, you know, the the uh, Kind of business as usual status quo. Status quo. And so, um, you know, so again, I want to emphasize that behind each and every one of those victories that are kind of the soft hand of, um, of, you know, government regulation um, is the grassroots struggle to expand democracy led by um, radicals, you know, led by activists, uh, many of whom happen to be socialist or communist or, or progressives of various stripes right no
0: those are absolutely excellent points um but you've been very busy and you've written a
1: few books can you want you want to tell us about your books sure sure I'd be happy to um well since um (laughs) since 2019 I you know when COVID hit and it was impossible to travel or really do anything um outside of my home office I just you know dived into the um research and writing, and, and I focused in on the, the lives and activisms of uh, a couple of, uh, of peoples that really um, uh, inspired me to, to my activism. And uh, my most recent book, which was published in the fall of 2021 or early 2022, which is titled The Cancer of Colonialism, uh, W. Alphaeus Hunton, Black Liberation and the Daily Worker, 1944 to 1946, um, deals with the life and times of a largely unsung civil rights leader by the name of W. Alpheus Hunton. And Hunton um, was a contemporary of W.E.B. Du Bois and Paul Robeson. Um, He was a Howard University professor in Washington, D.C. In 1936, he was part of a cadre of African-American leaders who helped to found what was then called the National Negro Congress. Um, and the NNC became, from 36 to 46, the largest black uh Uh, Black Liberation African-American Equality Coalition in the country with somewhere in the ballpark of 3 million members. And so this coalition, the NNC, um, led campaigns throughout the country to break down uh, Jim Crow restrictions, to uh, stop what was then, you know, blatant police assault on Black lives, um, which sounds eerily similar to what's going on today, um, to fight for uh, African-American participation in trade unions, um, and to build international solidarity with the uh, decolonizing world in Africa. And so, Hunton was a big part of this group called the NNC. And then in 1943, um, he moved to New York and became the educational director of of a group called the Council on African Affairs. Um, And the Council on African Affairs, specifically built international solidarity with the, uh, again, the decolonizing nations of Africa and built um, worldwide uh, uh, solidarity against uh, apartheid South Africa. And so you would find uh, Hunton lead in uh pickets around the south african consulate in in new york you would find him leading campaigns to boycott south africa and when um uh, black south africans were murdered by the apartheid regime you would find Alphaeus hunton kind of leading the campaign to popularize these struggles uh, in the united states he also corresponded with a number of the um leaders of the Black liberation movements in Africa during the time. Um, Unfortunately, due to uh, anti-communism and the McCarthy period, uh, the Council on African Affairs was forced to dissolve in 1956. Um, Alpheus then writes a book called Decision in Africa, and then by the the early 1960s, he moves to Ghana, which was one of the first uh, newly independent nations of Africa, to work with W.E.B. Du Bois on the Encyclopedia Africana. Um, after Du Bois's passing in 1963, Hunton becomes the uh, secretary, uh, the main person kind of guiding this project of the uh, Encyclopedia Africana until 1966, when Kwame Nkrumah, the president of Ghana, is ousted by a CIA-backed coup. Uh, Hunton then moves to Zambia, where he helps the ANC, the African National Congress, in its underground campaign to rid South Africa of apartheid. Uh, eventually he dies in 1970 of, of cancer. And so um, that's my most recent book is dealing with the life and times of, of this really amazing civil rights figure, um, Altheus Hunton, who's largely unknown, um, though he though we should have movies about him, but we, but we don't. And so a uh, really amazing person. Um, so, so that's, uh, just one of those, one of the books uh, that I, that I wrote while we were kind of on lockdown.
0: That's very interesting. Um, I put it in a shopping cart and we'll link your website where people can look for the books and your writings, uh, to this video. Um, you've been busy. You're a great guy. I've known you for a long time. Like we said earlier, um, we stood shoulder to shoulder in, in some fights for social, and economic justice. And I'm proud of that. You know, I can't think anybody better to represent the Communist Party in the St. Louis metropolitan area than you. And I knew, like I said, I knew when I was looking for that information and that uh, communists had helped her organize and coordinate the strike, I knew who to call. And that was Tony (laughs) Pekanowski. So I I appreciate that. But, you know, that's not the only book you've written. Um, You've written a couple others. Why don't you tell us about them?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Well, the um, the first book that I uh, published in uh, 2019 was is titled "Let Them Tremble: um, Biographical Interventions Marking uh, 100 Years of the Communist Party USA," and that book was actually a uh, meant to celebrate the centennial anniversary of the birth of the Communist Party, um, which was born on September 1st, uh, 1919. Um, and it's a collection of six short biographies of prominent uh, leaders of the Communist Party spanning the 100-year history. And so these short biographies include um, uh, Arnold Johnson, uh, Charlene Mitchell, Henry Winston, Gus Hall, um, Alphaeus Hunton, whom I just mentioned, and then Judith LeBlanc. Um, I'm not going to go into details on all of the six individuals, but I do want to mention um, Charlene Mitchell, uh, she passed uh, passed on earlier this year, um, and Charlene Mitchell, I'm going to mention two things about her. In 1968, she became the first African-American woman in U.S. history to run for president of the United States. Um, she didn't receive a ton of votes. Um, she was barred from being on the ballot in all but two states, um, and I mentioned that to mention that this was another example of the Communist Party um, pushing the envelope to ensure ballot status for third party candidates. Um, as much as people may or may not agree with the principles and ideas of the Communist Party, I think we can all agree that it is a fundamental principle of democracy that uh third parties should be able should be allowed to be on the ballot. And so Uh, This was one of the roles that the Communist Party played throughout the uh, 1960s coming out of the McCarthy era was we have a right to be on the ballot, just like any other third party. And so Charlene Mitchell, um, an African-American woman communist, um, uh, not only as a communist, but as a person of color and a woman, ran for president as in a historic moment in U.S. history. Um, And then... Of course, just a few years later, there's the trumped-up charges against Angela Davis in 1970, 71, and then Charlene Mitchell becomes the executive director of the national coordinated campaign to free Angela Davis, and of course, we all know that Angela Davis was eventually acquitted of all charges, and then by 1973, Charlene Mitchell becomes the executive director of what became the National Alliance Against Racist and Political Repression, which was one of the most important civil rights organizations of the 1970s and 80s. And so I mention all of that to say that there's this kind of stigma within US historiography that argues that the Communist Party became a marginal political force post 1956. Um, and part of what my book does, um, Let Them Tremble, is um, document uh, example after example after example where that um, that that uh, is just not the case where that does just not it just does not square with the historical record that the Communist Party in fact continues to be a um, a relevant force within the um, you know political life of our country. Um, so that's that's the first book and then the the, other, the second book is titled uh, Faith in the masses. Um, Essays Celebrate in 100 Years of the Communist Party, and it was published in 2020, and it's a collection of 12 essays um, by historians and scholar activists uh, from across the country, um, university professors, as well as, um, uh, like I said, scholar activists um, who on various aspects of the history of the Communist Party from uh, cultural perspectives, from sports perspective, you know, from the campaign to uh, uh, help Jackie Robinson desegregate baseball. You know, the the Daily Worker, the newspaper of the Communist Party, was the first newspaper in the United States to start the campaign to get Jackie Robinson uh, to, to be the, you know, the first uh, African-American baseball player um, you know, to, to break the color bar within baseball. And so that history is largely neglected, um, but it remains a fact. Um, and so there's various aspects within the history of the Communist Party that have been neglected. And this collection of 12 essays um, kind of covers that history. Um, and so that's a lot of what that second book is about, is that collection of 12 essays.
0: Great. So you've been working hard to set the record straight on the historical uh, connotations that communism has brought to the United States. And it's not the evils that we were raised to believe that it was. So if you had an opportunity to explain to someone, uh, give me just your elevator speech on what (laughs) communism is and and what it represents.
1: Well, you know, my elevator speech would have to include... Um, my experiences with my grandfather. Um, You may not know this, Glenn, but my grandfather uh, worked at the Chrysler plant um, uh, for 30 plus years. Um, And it was uh, the lessons that he taught me as a UAW member that led me to my socialist and communist uh, perspectives. Um, When I was a small child, I remember vividly uh, him reading to me out of the Solidarity magazine, the uh, UAW magazine. And so it was not only those experiences, but my, ex- my grandfather's experiences as a, a um, veteran who served in World War II when the uh, Soviet Union and communists were our allies. And so I think that if communists can be our allies in the fight against fascism, then communists can be our allies uh, today when we face another onslaught uh, against our democracy. Um, you know, we see all of these attacks in Texas and Florida, even here in Missouri, in Georgia, all across the country. Uh, we see you know right wing militia groups popping up all over the place. We see the the attacks on the mayor in in, in Michigan. Um, the, the attacks in the Capitol in D.C., people are being sentenced to jail now. Thankfully, the, the head of the Proud Boys just got sentenced to 17 years in jail, you know, um, and thankfully that is happening. I hope I hope that the person responsible, the person at top, um, uh, Mr. 45, gets his due Um uh, you know, but I think that if we can find allies in the Soviet communist in the fight against fascism uh, during World War II, that we would be able to find allies in the Communist Party and in the ideas of socialism today. Um, as far as what socialism and communism mean to me, um, I think what it means is a fuller understanding, a fuller participatory meaning of democracy that extends into the economic spheres of our lives. Um, You know, just like a union means democracy in the workplace, ideally, I think it means democracy in the workplace. Um, And I think that's what socialism, you know, extends to is a more fuller understanding of democracy in our society where the workers who produce the wealth of our society decide democratically how that wealth is spent um, in a nutshell. I mean, that's kind of the elevator speech, I guess.
0: Right. One of the things that I learned in reading Walter Johnson's book and in my conversations with you, including uh, this conversation today, communism's roots are buried pretty deep in social and economic justice, regardless of race, religion, etc. And you know, to me, that's just kind of shocking. Uh, it's an eye-opening experience. I'll put it that way. And it makes me want to learn more about it. And definition of socialism and communism in other countries is not exactly the same definition that we have here in the United States. Uh, Bernie Sanders was a democratic socialist, unabashedly so. Mm-hmm. And what he talks about are things that are good for the country. In Tom Hartman, I don't know if you've read many of his books. He's talked about it on a show. Uh, he taught, he called it the commons, your parks, your roads, your bridges, your infrastructure, um, your education system are all commons that we pay money into your fire departments and first responders. We pay money into these commons which are good for the good of all the people. I could never afford my own fire truck, Yeah, you know? So heaven forbid I need one, but I pay into a taxes into a fund that provides for fire departments and snow removal. You know, people don't look at it that way. The levies that protect our farmland, that's a form of socialism. And that helps the masses. But anyway, um, Kudos to you for working on trying to dispel the stigma of communism and socialism, too. Uh, Tony, it's great. You're you're a good guy. I've said that before. Um, I hope that uh, down the road you maybe come back on the show and we have another conversation. But in the meantime, why don't you tell us where people can find your books? Tell us about your social media presence and we'll go from there.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, well, finding the books is, is very easy. Um, all three books are, of course, available. Um, I mean, I know I, I hate to say this, but it's kind of the way of the world right now. I mean, everything's available uh, via Amazon. But if you want to buy directly from the publisher, which I recommend, um, go to uh, intpubnyc.com. That's International Publishers, um, which is the publisher, so intpubnyc.com nyc.com. The names of the books are The Cancer of Colonialism, Let Them Tremble, and Faith in the Masses. Um, and I also write regularly for a number of different publications, including, you know, People's World, uh, Black Perspectives, um, the St. Louis Labor Tribune. I'm going to write up an article uh, this week um, about the CBTU uh, dinner. Um and uh, you know, I'm, I'm not really on social media a whole lot. I, I kind of post a few things to my personal Facebook page occasionally, um, but uh, I've, I've tried to steer away from too much uh, social media. Um, I've, I've found that uh, there's a lot of um, political silos that people get into. And so um, I, I'm kind of steering in the other direction um and so i i really appreciate the opportunity to come on and 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 speak with you glenn and this has been a great discussion and i'd be really happy to come on again at, at any time and um so yeah so thank you Tony. it's great man i appreciate it and
0: we'll post the links where people can find your your writings and uh keep up the good work brother i'll tell you it makes me feel good knowing that I'm in the same battle as you. Uh, We stood shoulder to shoulder before, and uh, we may end up standing shoulder to shoulder again. So, absolutely, um, Tony Pekanowski, thank you very much for coming on. This concludes this edition of Collective Bargain. I'm your host, Glenn Coggy from Labor Front, and Tony, thank you again, and we'll be in touch.
1: Awesome, thank you. Yeah, you too.
0: Pod is a production of Midmap Media LLC. Producers Adam Summer, Rachel Parker and Sean Diller. Outro song by American Aquarium written by BJ Barnum called The World Is On Fire. Learn more about the Heartland Pod at heartlandpod.com. Learn more about American Aquarium at americanaquarium.com. Well, the came
2: and went. Not a damn thing That's when I saw a said what are we gonna do what's this world coming to for the first time in my whole life i stood there speechless Give mercy to the poor Give warmth to the huddled masses And I'll show you I worry about the world she's coming into But she'll have my fight She'll have her mama's fire If anyone builds a wall in her journey Baby busts right through